Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get into the interview this week, I should mention that we had a raft of technical problems related to the fact that my guest, Dr. Daniel Jacquet's neighbours were doing renovation work, which meant I had some sort of drilling noises and what have you to edit out. That wasn't such a problem, but you may find there's a little bit of background noise here and there. But most critically, they managed to cut the power to his house rather abruptly when we were about 90 minutes into our interview. Now, we did end up getting back on together and trying to re-record something. But unfortunately, Daniel was on his phone and it didn't work at all. The sound quality was just so appallingly bad, I couldn't salvage it. So this interview ends rather abruptly, but that's okay because it gives me a golden excuse to invite him back onto the show for a second round, because I'm sure when you've got to the end of this one, you'll be like... Oh my God, we have so much more to talk about. So, without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Dr. Daniel Jacquet, who should need no introduction. He has been extremely active in both the academic and practical aspects of medieval combat research for the last couple of decades or more. He is perhaps best known for his work on how well a knight could move in armour, and he has a PhD from Geneva University in medieval history on combat in armour at the end of the Middle Ages and at the beginning of the Renaissance, based on studying combat manuals. So, he has a PhD in actual, like, proper medieval sword-fighty stuff, not just general medieval history stuff. Excellent. <laughs> he is a founder and co-editor of Acta Periodica Duolatorum, the only academic journal focusing on historical martial arts, and he is perhaps best known for his video demonstrations of climbing walls and ladders, doing flips, and even chopping firewood in full armour. So... Without further ado, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the inter- nice introduction. <laughs> well, it's really, really nice to see you. And I think this is the first time we've had a proper conversation, isn't it? True. True. We exchanged okay, by so, email, so and uh, but never live. So right. So let's let's orient everyone to start with. Um, so whereabouts in the world are you? In Switzerland, uh, the French-speaking parts, um, in a lovely valley away from any city center. I'm really happy there. <laughs> Excellent. But don't tell us which valley or people will come looking for your house with all the swords and the armor. <laughs> <laughs> I was easier to find before because I lived in the castle. So castle, everybody know where it is. Now I'm a bit more lost. So so you lived in a castle? Yep. For How come? Yeah, five years. Uh, was private property, rebuilt. Well, built in the 14th century, rebuilt in the 16th century. And I was happily living there with three more families. It was great on the shores of the lake, so three minutes away Lovely. from the lake. Perfect. Why did you ever leave? Yeah, because uh, they wanted to buy, and uh, Chinese investors now they're looking to turn this into a um, Harry Potter school. And, uh, oh no! Yes, yes, they do this. And they're turning it into Hogwarts. Yes. And I didn't have the 25 millions needed to uh, buy this castle, so we went away. 
Well, in which case, the historical martial arts community has let you down severely because <laughs> they should have bought enough of your books and what have you. That <laughs> yeah, dude. You have 25 million euros to buy a castle. Because, I mean, let's face it, if you owned that castle, it would be a some sort of historical martial arts retreat center yeah. eventually, wouldn't it? We, That's, that would happen. Yeah, I think it's the dream from, of many, right? But, um, yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what the future holds. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to get there to uh, uh, with books because uh, as academics, we don't own any money uh, on books we publish. Of course, you give yeah. your rights and uh, yeah, maybe sometimes oh, if you're happy, you get like a hundred bucks. So you go to the restaurant ah. and you feast. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I, I make about half of my income from my books. Mm. Because I, I don't go the academic publishing route because I'm not interested in um, the sort of academic status side of it. Like, I, I don't write my books so that universities will give me a job. Um, <laughs> I write them so that people who want to read them will buy them. And, and that's good. And, and you know, I you know, make money that way. But it's a very, very different proposition being in academia I think yeah it's it's part of the job so you uh, you refuse to uh, get any income from this but uh, if you get well I don't know uh, famous enough then you can start making money out of your books but uh, yeah it's a long way so how did you get started with the whole historical combat thing <laughs> yeah as many of your guests I think I have the same answer like uh, child dream blah 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 but uh, yeah. in my case, the armor stuff was kind of uh, different. I I started LARPing very early. Um, then, uh, how do you say this? Uh, scenic medieval combat stuff. And uh, then I went to study. And I discovered the beautiful world. It was 2000-ish. Uh, not a lot of these things were available. I met the guys in Dijon. And uh, my world just opened up. I turned all my academic uh, uh, endeavors in that direction. Um, and at some point, when I come to sign on on my dissertation, the, the, my supervisor told me, "Yeah, well, how many how many manuscripts do you have? Like fifty? That's too much. Find a way to cut it." I said, "I, I know exactly why. <laughs> how I will cut this? <laughs> I will just focus on everything that is armored fighting related." He said, oh, that's a very good idea. I said, yes, yes, indeed. That's a good supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually sort of got into it almost through academia. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I think it was just before, like when I was 14, 15, I was already into it, fighting with wooden stick and right. stuff like this. Um, and then I discovered that there was, uh, were these fight books. And I said, I yeah. want to study this. And I want to study history, so I should just focus on this. What was the first fight book you came across? Do you recall? I was, I was. Well, the first one was uh, about. <laughs> I can tell this story. This was nice. <laughs> I um, I was the student of a so-called master, one of these uh, self-titled uh, masters, and uh, he was mm -hmm. teaching uh, scenic sword fighting. And uh, I was so like like stage combat, stage like combat, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, he said, "Yes, I have very ancient knowledge." Um, and I said, "Yeah, uh, I'm I'm studying history, so where, how?" And he said, "Yeah, I have books." Said, oh, crazy! You have books? Yes. 
And it took me two years until I was to the level of uh, his confidence to say, well, I will bring you these books. Maybe you can learn a little bit about them. And he brought, okay. me, <laughs> he brought me the 19th century editions of the Talhofer. And uh, oh wow! Uh, and I was and he, kind he of very, with... very disappointed. <laughs> like, ah, <laughs> that's your ancient books. That's 19th century. No, no, that's from the Middle Ages. I said, no, that's from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he made you wait two years yeah. before he'd even show you the books. Yeah. yeah, that is by definition a dickhead. Yeah, well, but he knows how to earn money. I think he made his way to this, and uh, yeah, oh, he's good. But at least, at least those nineteenth-century editions of Talhofer, they are sort of based on a fifteenth-century source. So, like, they're like a window into yeah, true the Middle Ages stuff. True, and uh, nobody cares about reading what is written. Nobody understands them. So, <laughs> just images, <laughs> image books, um, right. and it's easy for a, a stage combat fighter to make it look like medieval fighting. And I said, well, sure. it's not what I'm interested in. I want the real stuff. So, yeah, we separated ways there. <laughs> okay, and but that that got you into looking for the medieval yeah. materials. Yeah, and then I had I, a similar was... experience. Yes. Yeah, with um, I found a book in my uh, grandmother's house that had belonged to my grandfather called "The Sword in the Centuries" by Alfred Hutton. Yes, <laughs> and it was and that sort of made me realize, hang on, there are people, because there were, there are, there are like extracts of, of historical fencing manuals in there. I was like, hang on, there are, these pictures are from books actually about how to fight with swords, actually written in the time period when people actually fought with swords. Oh my God, I had no idea such things existed. And that's when I started looking for them. Yes. Must have been in about 92, 93, something like that. And like, oh my God. And then we started finding these books because... That, that 19th century book, I think it's 1904 or something. Um, it's that very early 20th century book. Its main contribution really is it tells people that these older books exist. Yeah. So so I guess those 19th century German versions of Talhofer have done pretty much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And usually, uh, well, these are these networks. They were either collectors, uh, fencers themselves, mm-hmm. uh, or they were... Well, maybe, and they knew all of them. Uh, Sidney Onglo, in his late contributions, I think it was in the Glasgow uh, conference 10 years ago, uh, he was saying, well, just go to the archives and look how Hutton knew him and him and him yeah. and how they get together. And I think that, that there is a lot of people who actually tried to, well, dig into this. They did, yeah. Um but I haven't seen any publications that really just like exhaustively go through this. So yeah, maybe you know one, I should. Um, no, I don't think anyone has done a proper study of the, not, not the historical martial arts of the late 19th century, but the historical martial arts. Um, interest, revival. Interest or, yeah. It, it was like our historical martial arts thing is, not the first time this has happened. It's the, the first one was started in the, the 1880s with Egerton Castle and Alfred Hutton and people like that. Uh, Cyril Mathie as well. I'm more more aware of the English ones because they wrote their books in English, but there were also people like, I mean, like why did Navati publish the Pisani Dossi 
in facsimile yeah. in like 1903. Well, it was part of this sort of bigger um, kind of Europe-wide trend is yeah. of just looking into these books and trying to kind of figure out how people fought back then. Yeah, true. Right, and so. uh, that would be very interesting to have someone digging this out more. Yeah. There's definitely a story that I, I, I don't think I'm the right person to do it, but somebody listening might be. So if you're looking for like a, a thesis topic, yep. a, a good sort of overview of the historical martial arts community, you know, Because people had communities before they had the internet, right? <laughs> and there was this international community of European scholars. Um, scholars think, also, Erasmus. and and collector and collectors and fencers themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know at least from the French one, the Italian one, the Austrian Austrian ones, and of course the mm -hmm. English one. This this uh, has some publications on this. So yeah, there will be something to uh, to look for and to to work. Uh, going back to your question, was was what was the first when I uh, mm -hmm. books that I look into um, was well okay uh, Fiore de Liberi was known uh, Talofa okay. was known and I figured out there were a lot more in the south actual South Germany and I said mm -hmm. well between North Italy and South Germany one of the main commercial routes go through Switzerland there should be Swiss right. a Swiss fight book. Let's find it. And that was my quest. That was my early quest. And, was uh, it successful? Yes. <laughs> well, depends on how you define the borders of Switzerland. But this, well, uh, I think, <laughs> <laughs> so, so which, 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 um, source are you claiming for the Swiss? Yeah. The so-called Hugo Wittenwiller Hausbuch. Oh, uh, Hausbuch. Yeah. I think you might have come across it. That's, uh, We don't agree with the dating. That's between 1463 to 1493, in between those. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a non-straight Lichtenauer comment. Uh, it has weird thing, including Swiss uh, weirding weird stuff like the Basilard uh, fencing. All right. Yeah. And, uh, fencing with Basilards. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, that's really nice. Well, but that's about the same uh, of uh, any Messer, I, th I would say. Um, okay. It's Messer-related because of the length. But uh, it's nice. So it, this one has wrestling, um, uh, longsword, dagger, and Basilard. And that was my first cool. uh, stuff. And nobody knew about this one, or it was not really well known, only very Experts would say uh, I still don't know about it. <laughs> right. I did my I did my license thesis on this. I did the first edition uh, okay. looking into this, and that was 2004, <laughs> Um, excellent. So, so it's, it's actually a Swiss source. Well, with the Basilard, does make it kind of Swiss, doesn't it? Yeah, but like, um, it's like the sausage. Uh, everybody yeah. says that the sausage comes from Frankfurt. No, no, they come from Basel. No, they come from this one. Depends on which region you yeah. are. And uh, sure. this kind of weapon um, is well. One of the center of uh, production was Basel, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it comes, it, it takes his name from there. Um, but actually, it was produced everywhere in Germany. 
uh, and also north of the Alps. But specifically, this uh, this shape and name, and also some part of the dialect, uh, led us to to think that is indeed from this region. Okay, uh, actual... I'm, I'm quite I'm quite happy to call it Swiss if that makes you happy. Uh, that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now, okay, I'm gonna just throw this out there because of of all the people I know who have spent serious time and effort um, like demonstrating beyond reasonable doubt that a man in full armour is not this clumsy, heavy, can barely move. If you drop him on his back, he lies there like a turtle, waving his arms and legs in the air, going, help, help, help. All right. So here's my question. So it's true that knights had to be winched onto their horses, right? Of course, of course, according to, of course, according to Mark Twain mythology. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, myth-busting, uh, there, are, there, are, there are scholars who already did this and very yeah, early sure. on. And uh, yeah, it's in the popular culture because of this uh, novel of Mark Twain. The yeah, there's a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Correct, right? yeah. Yeah. And this was invented there, this crane lifting him on the horse. And we have yeah. no archaeological source, no documentary sources, and no iconography. And, and if, you're, if you're fit enough to ride the horse usefully, mm. you pretty much have to be fit enough to get onto it. Yes. Because if you can't use your legs, you can't direct the horse. And yeah, okay. but, but it's so um, embedded into the people's minds that they still... I know. Yeah. Like in conferences, it's, I try to show this, and very established scholars or authorities in the field, no, no, but they, you cannot move like this. Say so yes, yes, you can. <laughs> just, just forget about this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Mark, Mark Twain is a great writer, and you know, he's he's written some absolutely immortal things. But that, this is the problem of what well, we see the same problem in movies now, mm. right? They they are a force for good or evil. They can they can spread a really good idea or they can spread a really bad idea yeah. and just kind of build it into the popular consciousness in a way that, you know, but like academic research just doesn't. <laughs> True. But that's not only his fault. It's also uh, the cinema movies. So it was oh, sure. embedded into this and it got it. Yeah. This idea got and, his own and, life. And as we should also point out that what the key part of that novel is this American guy, this Connecticut Yankee, gets hit on the head or something and wakes up in King Arthur's court. Like, so he goes back in time about 600 years or something, 800 years, whatever. Right. So it's not supposed to be historical realism. Yes. It's a, <laughs> it's a fantasy book. Yeah, it's a, a fantasy book. But true, it must be appealing at this time because a lot of uh, people in, in uh, that time era were also fascinated with Middle Ages and they covered, sure. wealthy people covered their uh, houses with replicas of armor which were not functional, which were heavy. And if you have this as an example, when you see one, of course you cannot move into this. That's heavy, that's clumsy. And uh, I think it was also appealing because of this. And uh, Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so, so basically... Um, Mark Twain has has sort of influenced your 
career to an extreme degree. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's a, it's a, also in the in the field of history, the many fields of history. There are um, there are turns, as they call this. And at some point, happening in the into the nineties, was this material turn. More and more scholars said, "Let's get out of the archives and just yeah. confront your ideas with real stuff." And yeah. uh, when I when I started with the armor, the first thing my colleagues or supervisor or anyone saying, well, just you, what's the object? And uh, yeah. what's the impact of this object that we don't know, that we can see through glass in museums, but that nobody wears on your body? And I said, yes, what I should do is that I should have lived in the late 19th century and know a lot of uh, wealthy collectors and just borrow an historical armor to make right. my test. Of course. You know you know that um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's grandson um, did, in the 1950s, strapped on actual historical art, like genuine yep. medieval armor, and to, to fight his friends who were also wearing genuine medieval armor. Right. It, there, was a, there was an article about it in Life magazine, and I, I have that copy of Life magazine <laughs> from the 1950s. Nice. It is fascinating. It's like... Like, but just, just, just imagine now what it would take to persuade a museum or, or the owner of a suit of armor just to let you put it on and fight people in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is this is like the original stuff. This armor is like five hundred years old, and there they are, just you know, put it on and off they go and having fun with their friends. <laughs> Yeah, but you had you had Toby on the on the podcast, and uh, he yeah. has the same. Well, sometimes you have access. I also worked as museum professional. I tried to mm-hmm. have both feet, one in the academic career, one in the museum world. Um, yeah, there are opportunities where you can actually have your hands on this, but usually wearing it and using it, mm, no. not now. <laughs> yeah. not I now. mean, you might be allowed to put the helmet on, or. Maybe try on a gauntlet or something. Yeah, or try the maximal extension if the rivets are okay and the leather yeah. works. Stuff like this you can, but uh, wearing it? Mm-mm. No, and then wearing it to fight people? Yeah. Definitely no. <laughs> uh, Okay, now, the theme of, of today's show... Uh, firstly, actually, I should say, I'm just really pleased to know that you're actually listening to, to, to the show. Because, you know, that's really cool. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's hard for me to know who's listening because, you know, it just goes out into the podcast apps all over the place. And I know that some people are downloading it because it's there in the thing, but it's, it's, it's always nice to come across a guest who's actually listened to the show. Um, but, okay, we're going to be going into quite a lot of detail about quite a lot of things, as you know, because I sent you the questions. But I do normally bring up one or two of my guests' academic papers. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have any, most of my guests are not. Uh, professional academics but on your cv there are seven pages of papers books articles contributions to conferences and so on right which is a simply astonishing output um my guess is obviously you don't have any uh, anything else to do in your life except write papers that's the only <laughs> way it's my job yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough okay but if you wanted to be remembered for just a couple of them which would you Choose. Yeah, I think I haven't written the book yet, but uh, who can say, well, I'm 40 years old, so I should come about now it's the time to make finally an impact on one authoritative stuff. 
But uh, I think I have scratched many surfaces and uh, there are many articles I am proud of. But usually as an academic, I like the idea of publish as fast as you can, even if it's not perfect, which is not the German way. The German way is the right way. Yeah, because if you don't publish, no one can comment on what you've done. Yes, correct. Unpublished work, you might as well not have bothered. Mm -hmm. Because how how it's not going to change anything, and you won't get any feedback on its quality if people can't see it. I have a lot of colleagues uh, who are sitting on mines of treasures and not publishing Mm -hmm. this. And I said, yeah, but why? Said, no, it's not finished. It's not perfect. (laughs) You're too German. Yeah, they are Ah. educated to do this in Germany. So. Um, yeah, and not only in Germany, some other countries as well. But uh, yeah, so yeah, back to your questions. Uh, I don't know, several. Um, the armor thing was interesting because I said, okay, I'm an historian, uh, I'm not a museum person. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, and I said, I need to have something really objective on how, what's the impact of the armor. Mm. And this, in my field, I cannot do. Yes, of course, I can pull out pull out quotes uh, uh, from uh, romances and comments on them, uh, compare this with technical literature and the fight books, this I can do. But I want a scientist who actually measures what what's the impact. So yeah. I knocked on doors and I, an article came out of this. Uh, we did the work in 2011-12, but uh, as usual with academic papers, it takes ages to get published. And this one was published in 2016. Uh, wow. In a weird journal called uh, Historical Methods, um, right. and it's more about statistical stuff like this. But uh, yeah, so we got an interdisciplinary uh, with movement scientists, specialist of uh, energy expenditures and uh, gate analysis, medical guys. And we put up a team. We put my replica on, and we did lots of. Um, of experiments. Like what? Um, we did the, how do you say this, when you run on the treadmill, uh, treadmill mm-hmm. run, when you measure the gas yeah. exchange, um, we did um, 3D motion capture, measuring every angle of all the joints. So you have three measures. You have extension, flexion, adduction, abduction, internal rotation, external rotation. This for all the joints. Uh, in two conditions, they say, uh, either for what they call natural movement, which is walking, uh, sitting, going down, going up, and what they call the ana- analytical uh, or maximal range of motion, where you test your maximal ability to move. And then we did all of these sets uh, with and without armor, and we compared it. Basically, it was this. So not really... Uh, did you... Is that the study where you jumped on a sort of trampoline to find, or tr- jumped on a pad to find yep. the impact? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what is the difference? <laughs> <coughs> I mean, I've worn armor, so I have a, I have a sort yeah, of know. internal yeah. sense of what the difference is. But many of the listeners will never have actually worn a piece of armor in their lives. So, yeah. Well, basically, it doesn't do anything. Like uh, you, have, you have an average of two percent of range of motions difference uh, for natural movement. Two percent. Yes, for walking, it's two percent. Wow. So really, nothing. Okay. This is not the energy expenditure. This is the ability to move. Right? Yeah, the ability to move. Yeah. Um, and on the analy- analytical movements, there you have another mm-hmm. a number, and that's twenty percent difference in my uh, in my study. 
Okay, so that's 2% in so natural motion. So armor restricts your motion by 20%. Is that a fair... Yeah, it's average. Summer. It's average because yeah. the highest uh, measure, uh, or how do you say this, um, obstacle to move was this yeah. movement. And all armor so wearers... Lift, lifting your hand above yeah. your head. Yes. That was the that was the worst. Okay, that that accords with my experience. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. one of the um, one of the the key finding there was uh, some movements are limited, some others are not. And, Interesting. Um, the idea there, because my suit is uh, from the second half of the 15th century, and there was already a lot of experience, so it was really yeah. high technological exoskeleton by then. Um, They knew what they were doing. And according to me, they designed these obstacles of movement. Really? Yeah, because, well, you have stuff that you cannot go around. But, um, like, you don't really need this movement when fighting in armor. What you need is this movement, the pushing forward, the pulling backwards. This you need to push your points in. Yeah. This has no limitation. Yes. Lifting has limitations. Above your head. Yeah. Okay. But it exposes weaknesses. Right. So you don't want to be lifting your arms up nope. because the armpit is a is a classic target for armored combat. Correct. So so the arm basically is helping you to stop yourself from exposing delicate bits. Yeah. And also the limitations, ah. like the full extensions of the arm, so uh, yeah. expanding your elbow, is also yeah. limited. Which only slightly. Slightly, because yeah. and you can you can fine tune this because yeah. you don't want your arm to be broken. Yeah, you don't want to hyperextend it. But so the armor protects you from a hyperextension. Yes. I, ah, it's genius. And you can you can you can fine tune this. Uh, at the, the settings you wish with your armor. You said, I don't want you, my arm extended more like this, uh, or I want it hyper-extended, or depending on what you do. You fight on foot, you fight in tournaments, you go to war. Dep- and also, at that point, if you had the money and the wealth, you don't, you don't have one suit of armor, you have a kit no. of different interchange- interchangeable pieces that you could put together. So, yeah. Wow, that is super cool. So, so there's a, an average of 20% restriction, but actually some motions are severely restricted and many other motions are not restricted at all. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I have a funny... Although, yep, please. I, I have an armor restriction. Sorry. When I first got my cuirass, yep. um, which had the tassets and stuff on it, and I, it, I didn't have the arms and the helmet and the legs yet, and I just thought, okay, I'm just going to... Just to get used to it, I'll just teach my regular class wearing it. And of course, that includes a warm-up. And I found there was one critical restriction. When I went down to do push-ups, the tacits sort of flopped down <laughs> so they were vertical, and they stopped me from going down towards the ground. I don't think that has any relevance to combat effectiveness. Correct. And I don't think it was designed to make push-ups, otherwise they would have made it differently. No. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they'd strap the end of the tacit to the leg or something. Ah, oh, marvellous. Okay. I, I have an anecdote on this uh, research uh, thingy. Um, I remember we were doing the, the walking uh, analysis, the gate analysis, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Um 
and we got the first results on the monitor and I was sitting next to the uh, to the scientist and uh, said okay so these are the graphics and this shows how blah 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 and I said wait is the, this blue line the one in armor she said yes so how come do I have more movement in armor than without and she said I don't know <laughs> and I said <laughs> well the test is wrong. And she looked at me furiously and said, no, that's established methodology for sports scientists. It is not wrong. You have more motion in armor than you without. <laughs> <laughs> and that was crazy. And what that was that for, is crazy. That there was, uh, this was for a few, measured for a few movements. And this was the um, uh, flexion of the, um, uh, the feet, the foot, sorry. Ah, okay. And uh, it's because you are loaded of 30 more percent of your body weight. Um, yeah. And so that... So the foot will flex more because yeah, it's absorbing that Because force. of the weight. Ah. That also means that uh, people experimenting uh, or doing historical European martial arts specifically for armor fightings, uh, fighting without wearing some kind of kit that um, uh, will give the weight their impetus and um, uh, speed, but more over the power is missing. You do have more power when you do yeah. any kind of movement that goes forward with the added load. And yes, this is something, well, as an armor fighter, you would know, but many of other people say, well, it will restrict your movement. Well, no, some of them will be uh, extended. Yeah, because the, the weight of the armor will sort of pull you into it. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like, you know, people doing, like, squats holding a kettlebell. Yes. They will tend to go deeper holding the kettlebell because the weight of the kettlebell pulls them deeper into the squat. Yeah. So I guess it's the same sort of principle in, in play. Yeah. Huh. Ah, oh, that's fascinating. So um, where can people find this this study? Uh, this one is online open access. So uh, you Lovely. just have to have the link and then you can read to it. Okay, I will put a link in the show notes so that people who are who want to go and see the stuff themselves, and it's totally worth going to have a look at because it is it is absolutely fascinating. I actually have a note here, like if he doesn't bring this particular study up when I ask him the previous question about the studies he really likes, then then I have to ask the question. I'm glad you got to it. Um, okay, so yeah, the link will be in the show notes, and people can go and find the study there and. Is it available in English? Yes, it's in English, cool. written in English. Yes, yes, it's in English. Excellent. Okay. That makes life a lot easier for us Anglophones who... Well, I can read French reasonably well, but <laughs> it's much easier in English. <laughs> um, okay. Um, you, so when you were talking about which one you wanted, which studies you would like to be a member for, you were sort of like, well, I haven't written the book yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, my feeling is the book would be something along the lines of um, the practice and consequences of wearing armor, right? So everything, all the stuff you know about wearing armor, what it does, what it's good for, what it, what restrictions are. I mean, that seems to me like the natural sort of um, summary of all of that armor combat research from a practical perspective. Hmm. So that, that would be my, let me just float that into your brain and you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is something um, coming out next, 
No, no, not next month. In two weeks now. Really? Yeah. Um, there is a beautiful exhibition um, in the making now. It's opening at the end of March. It's in Vienna. Where? Vienna, okay. Offjagd und Ruskammer, the historical uh, museum. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a lover of armor, you would know that's one of the pilgrimage for armor, uh, this uh, imperial collection. And um, now it's called the Welt Museum because they they did some ch- few changes. But the curator there, uh, Stefan Krause, put up a very, very good show, which is called Iron Man. Well, usually okay. curators, they don't choose their um, exhibition <laughs> titles. Now it's the communication department, right, to do this. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so it's basically, it's armor from uh, child armor to funerary armor, uh, 15th, mm-hmm. 16th century, with their great uh, pieces. There's a lot of textile involved, a lot of uh, iconography there. It's a really big show. It's four, mm-hmm. four years in the making. Wow. And um, yeah. It's going to be real great. And uh, in how, the, how long will it be on for? I think now they tend to do these major exhibitions and only put it, let it there for four months. I think it's five months, this one. So yeah, book okay, your tickets. Yeah, well, because this episode, this episode isn't going to be going out for a couple of months yeah. after we speak. So what I might do is go and find that yeah, I'll and I'll check. put a link to it in my newsletter. I'll check. So that I'll get that link out early. So people have a bit more time. Mm-hmm. And then I will speak to my wife about a little weekend in Vienna, perhaps. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I have I have a uh, contribution in the exhibition catalog where I was mm-hmm. asked, well, I, I went there because the armor that I wear is a replica for the one that is in the collection. And the curator uh, said, well, Daniel, can you come and do a few of uh, moving in armor stuff for us? Yep. And um, I went and I said, uh, yeah, this is this is good. We also do the, a lot of uh, social media stuff, funny stuff you're going to see. Um, but I said, I want to write something in the book as well to talk about my experience wearing armor because usually you don't mm-hmm. find this. Um, it's more about either the historical uh, production of the armor, uh, tracing the history of that type, type particular pieces, but usually you don't have the opportunity to actually do this. And the creator said, yep. this is great. Let's do uh, do something about this. So five cents, seeing, talking, uh, seeing, uh, smelling, feeling in armor uh, about my experience. And like an ethnographical researcher going back on his notes, uh, yeah. writing about his experience wearing a replica. So that's what I did. So it's going out. Fantastic. German and English uh, in two weeks. Wow. Excellent. Okay. Now that's not the book. No, that's not that's, the book. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like the basic topic of the book has yeah. been, has, has been addressed there. Excellent. Okay. And, and yes, definitely, um, armor fans need to, um, have a look at their travel schedules and get themselves to Vienna sometime this year. Yeah. The show ends in the 26th July, uh, June, 26th June. It's over. 26th yeah. of June. That does not give us much time. Okay. I may bump this episode a bit further ahead in the schedules. Because I know if, if somebody gets there on the 27th of June, they're just going to curl up and die in disappointment. <laughs> no! <laughs> I, had, um, I had the opportunity there to... Uh, I, I was willing to do this. I don't know... Well, I, I'm pretty sure you know uh, the collection, but you have this great room with uh, a lot of uh, late 15th and early 16th century armor on the wall, lined up on Polis. I only see it in pictures. I've okay. never been to Vienna in my whole life. Never been. 
and uh, <laughs> yes, you should, <laughs> you should. And um, there, I said, okay, I want to have an empty podest where I can, I could just me myself just uh, going in and do the armor pose, like yeah. the armor going to the job uh, to his work day. He's standing on this podest for ages. And we did just that, so it was really great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, okay, so slight change of direction. Now, as a Fury man, as I am, mm-hmm. um, we have to talk about Marshall Busico, <laughs> yes. right? who famously lost to Fury's student, Galeata de Mantua, twice. <laughs> right? But he was still considered one of the greatest knights in Europe. Obviously not as good as Galeazzo de Mantua, but actually in his time, I think his reputation was probably even higher and wider than, than Galeazzo's. And sadly, sadly, if you read if you read French uh, guys, they have this tendency to say French is the cent- France is the center of the world. So of course, Busico yes. was the greatest knight ever. So, <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, now. There is this sort of almost hegeographical, um, like, sort of biography of Jean Le Maigre II written in his lifetime, I think. Or was it in his lifetime or was it slightly after? Yeah, it's written in his lifetime, but the manuscript that we got are after, but it was written in his lifetime. Right. Um, which basically details some of his feats of arms mm-hmm. um, and training methods and what have you. And, um, you're the only person who I've ever seen climb up a ladder from the underside in armor. Mm. So could you, could you like summarize for us what those training methods are mm-hmm. and what it's like to actually do them in armor? Um, we did a selection of those. So the project was uh, uh, the videos I did were quite successful, but it was not mm-hmm. expected. In the beginning, I said uh, this was always linked with an exhibition. And uh, yeah. the first one I put up was 2011 for this exhibition on swords. Uh, and uh, this one went, went viral. Uh, it has 4 million views. It's crazy. Jeez. And um, people say, well, you have to do this. You have to... And I say, yeah, it's not my job. <laughs> 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 and uh, if people knew how much uh, budget we had, like nothing, pieces, peanuts to, uh, to do this... Yeah. So I was encouraged to do more. So that's why I picked the Busico story. Because Busico story is, is known because of this text. And it's one of the very few uh, texts that relates training. And um, there is a list of training, especially in that section where he says, when he was younger, this is how he trained for tournaments. And there is a list of exercises. Yeah. When he was younger, emphasis yes, on emphasis. when he was younger. Yes. <laughs> so at 48, I am not expected to do these things. Correct. <laughs> yeah, it's like other authors as well. Uh, if you've read Pietro Monte, he's also said, oh, when I was younger, I can do this feast. No, I cannot do it anymore. But yeah, yeah you have to be flexible. Uh, <laughs> crazy. Yes. And crazy, I think it's the, it's the emphasis there. But yeah, we, we chose a few uh, stuff that we didn't choose what I was able to do, we chose what was really uh, nice to see on the screen. And uh, the original idea was to to make one shot in uh, historical context without any um, modern gear, gym stuff, and other stuff. And the same exercise into a modern 
controlled environment like a gym hall or a modern climbing wall. We didn't right. get the money to do this, <laughs> so we yeah. we we took images that we had. But yeah, we did um, climbing. Busico says that he can climb um, between two walls up and down without falling, and he gives us the distance between these walls. And right. I remember I went to a castle and I said, um, I want to climb there. And the curator said, you're not allowed to do this. I said, why? He said, you're, you're afraid for your uh, stones? And he said, no, I'm afraid for you. No, secu <laughs> right. no security if you fall. How high would you like to climb? And I said, yeah, I don't know, like three meters. Um, so we did this and we also climbed this, uh, this wall. So this is one. The other is uh, jumping on the horseback without the stirrups. Yep. As well, I have friends. I don't ride. Uh, I have friends who ride. And I said, can I do this on your horse? He said, are you going to hurt the horse? Well, uh, well, yeah, true. I think, I think the horse, if, you do, if you're not a rider, yeah. um, then I think the horse needs to be sort of trained for that to kind of know what's going on so it doesn't move at the wrong moment or Correct. Yeah. whatever. Yeah, and you just basically, what you have to do for this is to uh, put up your foot as high as you can uh, yeah. with the, um, the uh, yeah, so yeah, it can hurt the horse with the armor pieces around the leg. Yeah. Um, this we did, uh, it talks about running. Mm -hmm. Um, it talks about, uh, it was, on the on the show, we did um, uh, striking firewood, but in the text he said striking on wood, which is probably one of these training stuff like um, right. Yeah, it's probably like hitting the pal. Yeah, so it's hitting the pal, but we did the firewood stuff because he says uh, do this longer with the axe, uh, longer and longer in the day, and remember do not uh, lift your arm too much. Interesting, right, of course. <laughs> yeah, because you don't yeah, want to okay. uh, to train to do actually this all the time. This yeah, thing, uh, you, you don't want to put your hands over your head. head. Yeah. yeah. So we did this, uh, the ladder, reverse ladder, of mm -hmm. course. And uh, yeah. as you know, yeah, this this hurts the neck because <laughs> right. I was going to say because because getting your hands above your head is really hard yeah. in armor, and there you are, you're hanging. Yeah. Let me just describe it for the listeners. Okay, so you have a ladder set up like against a wall and on the underside of the ladder, you reach up and grab the rungs and then you climb up the ladder hand over hand and your feet don't touch the ladder. You're just doing it like sort of like going across a monkey gym, mm. swinging from hand to hand, but you're doing it going up a ladder in armor, which means the whole weight of your armor and body is hanging on your arms, which is going to pull them straight and your elbows will go near your ears and the armor will do horrible things to you. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> like like putting the elbow protection in your throats, like this, Aye, uh, really yeah. nice. But so uh, I had to build special muscles to do this, like balancing it and it's uh, lifting your body on one sense. So you, so you have to balance yourself from left to to, uh, to right. Yeah, so, you, so you're sort of swinging yeah. left side to right side. To compensate the fact that you cannot really hang. Um, yeah. And I was really disappointed also because I hadn't, uh, I had a big ladder, but not big enough. Um, yeah, I had, again, very small budget on this. And if I had to do it again, maybe I would one day. Um, 
before I'm 50, <laughs> <laughs> when I can still wear the stuff, um, doing it on a higher ladder because... I, I would suggest getting friends who are climbers yep. to set up a belay rope so that if you do slip and fall, yep. you fall about a meter yep. onto a rope and not all the way down the castle wall. Because <laughs> armor is not very good at protecting you from falling. Correct. <laughs> and we would we would hate to lose you. <laughs> it would be <laughs> it would be a bad thing for the historical martial arts community if you ended up killing yourself <laughs> trying to recreate Marshal Busico's feats in armor. And it's also worth remembering that Busico was trained from a child mm-hmm. to be a professional warrior and clearly was massively into it and yeah, you know, that was that was his job, basically. Right. And um, but the funny part, uh, and that's how we end the video. Uh, there is an additional comment on the earliest manuscripts that goes in the margin, and says that he was very well known from everywhere because he was able to do uh, what the English translator uh, uh, called somersaults in armor. Yes. With and he and he specifies without wearing the helmet. And he yeah. was also dancing, doing this without the helmet. And uh, of course, the French world of the French word for this could be meaning, uh, and then you have to help me. So either jumping and slapping your feet together. Um, right. This I don't know how to do to translate uh, in English. I, I'm not sure what the English term for that would be, but it's like you jump off the ground and you 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 kick your heels together. Correct. So this yeah. could be. I can't think that we'd call that a somersault, but maybe. Back in the yeah. 15th century or something, we did could probably. be I don't know. could be could be a uh, dance move with the feet uh, and jumping. Possibly could be as well what we call the wheel. So going on your hands and cartwheel. Yeah, yeah, cartwheel or the proper somersault. And right. uh, so I trained all of these moves. Because <laughs> <laughs> where there is where there is vagueness in interpretation or translation, one has to try all options. Of right? course, of course. Hypothesis one, <laughs> hypothesis two. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the somersault was hard, and uh, yeah, well, I can't do a somersault without armor. Yeah. So, and the easiest way to do a somersault is the back one. Which yep. you cannot do in armor because the way it doesn't allow you to move the back uh, as far as yeah efficiently yeah. So I had to go for the front one, which involves running, uh, jumping on the wall, and try to uh, land on your feet. And yeah, which I've seen. I've seen the video, and I'm not landing on my foot. <laughs> Almost. Well, you do. You do pretty well. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Okay, uh, so okay, you've, you've found this text. You, you decide, okay, I'm going to have a go at some of these these things, and you put the armor on and you do it. Yeah. And what do you what do you think that was? Um, okay, Busico is known for these things. Mm-hmm. Do you think? that most knights could do something like that? Or do you think this was extraordinary? Uh, Textual analysis, critical textual analysis, basics. um, We don't know. (laughs) We don't know. Maybe this, uh, as you you said, uh, almost a geographic um, character of this text 
could be put in doubt. One of the goal of these uh, chivalric biographies, which is one of the early examples, is to uh, make sure about the reputation of your yeah. character. So maybe there was an overemphasis on this. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I was willing to try this out. Uh, but the real goal, this was... Usually it's the other way around. If you uh, do a scientific inquiry on one of those things, you want to test it all and so on. Uh, this was not my goal. My goal was to produce a video for an exhibition to go for things just over the top. And Busico yeah. was very a visual example that would be nice to put yeah. in, in vision, not in words, but in vision. And that was the goal. I don't believe that uh, most of the people were able to do this. When I, I, have, I have friends who are firefighters, uh, some of them train and do crazy things in their firefighting uh, suits, which most of the firefighters don't do. Right. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and my reading of it, so I, I've I've read an English translation of that um, that source, and it was it was like they're presenting these things as this is an extraordinary thing he was able to do. This is one of the reasons why he's such a great knight, and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Which, of course, didn't stop him getting captured at Agincourt and spending the rest of his life in England. So, <laughs> Or losing jewels. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or losing jewels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Now, on the same sort of vein, and you mentioned firefighters. Um, okay, your obstacle run in armour video. Yep. Where Let me, let me just run through the... the uh, specifications for the listener who then they can watch the video themselves if they want okay there's an obstacle course and you guys do it in that you have a, a knight a soldier and a fireman and you go over the obstacle course in and in light gear the soldier did it in one minute 34 the fireman in one minute 36 and the knight in one minute 37 so they're pretty much identical then again in full gear the fireman did it in three minutes, the knight in three minutes 10 with a 13 second penalty, and the soldier in three minutes 35 with a 14 second penalty, which is a slightly bigger sort of gap between them. The loads you were carrying, the fireman had 28.5 kgs, the knight 29 kgs, and the soldier 31.2 kgs. So, what I, what I got from that video was sort of proof beyond reasonable doubt that the knight was approximately as agile and able to move around in full gear as we would expect a modern soldier or indeed a modern fireman. And the differences in capabilities wasn't that great. Is that fair? Completely fair. The goal of the video was to, to explain that it's, a, it's the same thing. It's about the same loads. It's about the same um, uh, movements, uh, range of mo motion. Um, and this was not my idea. This was a remake of a video that was already published in 1920s. Really? Yeah, visit to the Armors How Gallery. Did I miss that? <laughs> well, they did. They didn't do an obstacle run, though. But uh, there is this comparison between a, a modern soldier and a medieval knight. And this was okay. when they were exploring uh, this new media, the video, uh, as pedagogical uh, elements or uh, for the Metropolitan Museum New York. You can see the film, it's on the Met Media. Uh, you can find it. And okay. um, 
you had at some points a young assistant creator wearing a uh, an original suit. By the way, those <laughs> fuckers. Of course. And they invited a soldier just to say hello and just to compare this visually before the audience so that they can mm-hmm. relate. It's about the same weight. Yeah. Um, so it just pushing this a little bit further and uh, to say since a lot of people are. In the Swiss context, a lot of people are very, very near of the military experience because we sure. have this militia stuff. So a lot of the males uh, did this obstacle run, so they exactly know how hard right. it is. Yeah. Um, so you actually use the Swiss military yeah. obstacle course yeah. for this. Okay. And um, I took the fireman because uh, we didn't want to make it too military. Yeah, uh, and it's also the same uh, about the same amount of weight. Uh, it was difficult for many reasons, and we had to do adjustments. Uh, I have to say, uh, <laughs> uh, both of the firemen and the soldier were not professionals; they were militians. And this right. is good because okay. I'm not a professional knight. I don't. Sure. <laughs> I'm not Busico, so I don't train. Uh, I, I wore the armor a lot when I received it. Uh, like five days a week, two hours a day. That was the yeah. minimum. Uh, I was willing to build my, the muscles of my body to make experiments. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was good to have this militia uh, sense of the term or part-time fireman, part-time soldier, part-time knight. Uh, yeah. But both of them were 10, year, 10 years younger than me. This... Okay. Uh, yeah, that helps. Yeah, <laughs> that helps. Um, and also, when we were on the... Um, for the first time, this video, I had a little bit of budget. So we had a professional filming team. Uh, it was three days of shooting. Of course, we chose the middle of August. Very hot days, terrible. Yes. Um, and I said, I don't want any injuries. So don't just don't push it over the top. And if yeah. we were to do this experiment correctly, which was not a scientific experiment, it was watched, we measured a few things like heartbeat, uh, the, um, we did some analysis of the blood to see how yeah. you can recover and so on. Um, but it was not a, a, a scientific experiment per se, because if we were to do this, like uh, we should have trained on this yeah. obstacle run before and everybody should do the obstacle run with every gear and then you can compare yeah sure. <laughs> this we didn't do um we had to fight with um equipment i said my goal is to have the same weight so we have to adjust like the the light gear and the heavy gear is very different from one to another Sure. And also, like, uh, the firefighter had to wear the oxygen bottles on his back, mm-hmm. which is a very different way to move with a loaded back yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So this was not yeah. really... And the... Although, but, but the fireman actually is the only one who didn't get any penalties. Correct. So that's, which is, that's <laughs> so what, what penalties did you get? I forget what, okay. how did you, yeah, how was, did you fall from grace? Yeah, it was, it was not, uh, explained in the video. Uh, what we said, we each had, uh, the runners each had an assistant. If something yeah. happened, like, uh, I don't know, you get stuck, uh, somebody impedes your vision, uh, during the run yeah. or stuff like this. And, um, these, uh, time which were subtracted was the time where the helper came to fix something on the equipment. 
Ah, okay. And for my case, when I was doing the ramping, it was so exhausting yeah. because that's very, very long distance. It's like, I don't know, 30 meters. So, is, that, is that when you were like crawling on the ramp? Yeah, crawling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And at that point, my, the, the, the underwear, no, not the underwear, but what I wore under the uh, helmet yeah. came half on to my eyes. Ah, okay. And so I couldn't see uh, really where I was going. So I called for help. She came, uh, put it over, and I continued my my course. Right. And for the soldier who had 40 uh, seconds, this was harder. He got stuck into one of the bars when he was (laughs) 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 running. So he had his help for putting him out of of one of the obstacles. (laughs) Fair enough. Wow. Okay, um, uh, uh, yeah, and it's it's just it's another it's a, it's a classic bit of um, sort of public communications yeah. because you're not claiming something, you're just showing it. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, um, now given the nature of the show, which I have a minimum fifty percent of my guests are female, mm-hmm. one of the points of my podcast is to sort of get people from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of areas and what have you onto the show so that, you know, we can we can see the, the breadth and diversity of the historical martial arts community and adjacent communities, right? So um, we should talk about the book which you contributed the chapter to, Comata, um, l'histoire de la violence féminine et en Occident. How's that for French? Oh my God. <laughs> I haven't spoken French in years and years and years. All right. Okay. So, can you, now you've, you've done that chapter in English as well. Yep. Um, and I will put a link to the English version of that chapter in the show notes. Yep. Um, because it's helpful for people to go and just read it themselves. Um, but tell us about that project and the chapter. Right. Okay. Um, English title in the journal uh, reads Fight Like a Girl, an Investigation into Female Martial Practice in European Fight Books from the 14th to the 20th Century. Um, the idea be- behind this chapter is a, a query for a very young lady. She was uh, 16 years old. She trains with me and said, where are the girls in your books? It's a fair question. Yeah. And I said, well, basically, from what I know, you have a few exceptions in the late Middle Ages. Then they completely disappear to reappear only in the late 19th, early early 20th century. So that's the basics. Now, what are the reasons? Uh, And uh, I said, yeah, it's worth a small study to try to understand this observation. So uh, basically, of course, uh, white male European society, uh, religious, uh, you understand why they were taken out from the context of technical manuals such as fight books. Um, They were made invisible. Doesn't mean that they didn't practice. And uh, this is really the case for the 16th, 17th century, where they are really hard to find. You can find them in early sources, and uh, then the question is why. 
And there are lots of theories, as you know, for the reason of the presence or absence of these uh, women in fighting practice. I don't know. Basically, what uh, the most elements where you can see that a female um, fighter is doing a technique that is designed for a female is only in the, into the a weird tradition that is that we can call the judicial dueling. Yeah. And this is where the uh, the author of the fight book says this technique is for a female. And this is one of right. the very few examples. Then you have one exception on the very first fight books where a female is not only drawn, but also named in the text. Even though some of uh, the specialists uh, says, well, maybe it's a, a an image to illustrate that this technique is maybe weaker, or there are many theories behind this. Oh, horseshit. Yeah, horseshit. This okay, any, any, any fucker says that, you send them to me, yes. and I will demonstrate Well Purchase's actions upon their person, Yep. And, and then they can say, oh, yeah, that's definitely a weak technique. Yeah, yeah. okay. So we're talking about the, um, just for listeners who aren't familiar, in the 133 um, fight book, um, well, Fight Knows 133 is in the Royal Armouries and it is the oldest treatise we have and it dates from about the 1340s and there is a character or a, a one of the people doing the fencing in the towards the end of the book is called Wild Purgis and she's clearly drawn as a woman and she is a scholar of the priest who is teaching this stuff and she does the various things that she's supposed to do and no actual it's presented without any kind of explanation or anything. It's just like, this is just a normal thing. Yep. We've had the scholar up to now, this generic sort of male scholar, unnamed. And then we have this woman who is named as Walpurgis. And, but other than giving her a name, she's not sort of singled out as any, in any way different, which I find really interesting. Um, but yes. <laughs> Yes, because girls can't fight, right? <laughs> Tell that to Jessica Finley. <laughs> yes, yes. Or Jessica Kirchhoff. She uh, took yeah. the subject uh, lately and she's giving series of conferences about this. Um, so, of course, as an historian, I know from other sources that women were fighting. Sure. And um, the problem with this uh, patriarchal society of ours is that mm-hmm. we try to do anything we put nets it's our duty to protect the weak women that's why they don't appear in books and that's why you would do anything to not let them fight so if you write a fight book just don't write it for women and this only changes in uh, the late 19th very early 19th century where women were suddenly again able to fight and of course you know about the suffragette and others but the first Author, female author of a fight book is 1904 uh, Wyatt, so uh, in English context, one of the students of Barton Wright. And she was um, writing and teaching techniques designed for girls to fight. And this, oh, yeah, because they're wearing different clothes and so they're not carrying walking sticks. And- this and also the context of uh, the, the actual society. And uh, if you read previous sources where uh, women are mentioned, it's either they are not able to perform the technique designed by men, or um, because they are too weak, of course. <laughs> right. So you have Tell to... Tell that to Beth Hammer, yeah. <laughs> another guest of mine, who, whose party trick is 
Right. Basically, her, her favorite way of saying hello to people she actually likes is to like lift them up into a fireman's carry. And she's done that to me, but I don't think I could do that to her, <laughs> even though she's like much shorter than me. Techniques. Um, Techniques. Just yeah, I'm just not that strong. <laughs> there we go. No, it's just it's not it's not about personal belief. It's just this observation of what is right. there in these uh, in these fight yeah, yeah, in yeah. these fight books. And um, of course, we both know, and the female audience also know that women can fight as good as men. Sometimes even better uh, depends. Because yeah. um, uh, what I were where was I going with this? Um, yeah, when when you read these earlier uh, fight books, usually it's either you have to make something that is a, a simplified version of the technique for male or uh, no technique at all. And this is, this is obviously wrong. And um, yeah, but that's what's written. And yeah. in my article and my research, I try to understand or to explain why it might be so. Because you yeah, have conflicting that. evidence that women were actually fighting. Right. And I have in my notes to ask you about um, a female burger from the town of Bern. <laughs> in 1460, owned six full armors. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, uh, in my academic career, after my um, PhD and after all of this stuff, uh, most of my colleagues said, why don't you... Why are not you? Why why you are not professor yet? And so because I'm too focused on fight books, I should I should show off and make some kind of other inquiry. So my latest project is about uh, uh, finding traces of fighting practices in other type mm -hmm. of documents to compare them with the fight books. And this is what I have done for the last past six years. And I've collected a lot of material. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, in some of those, you find women. And um, yeah, this female burger um, from a parent, she was also a burger from Zurich. Uh, she owns these armors because she can, um, how do you say this, loan them to other members of the guild. Yeah, rent them out maybe. Yeah, or to, to arm them. Basically, yeah. she has the resources to arm there a lot of men. She was not wearing this uh, herself. Okay. Because it was not um, socially accepted that women were uh, called to show up in arms at uh, armor, uh, arming controls. So the burghers of a yeah. city were obliged to have, to, to have uh, weapons and to yeah. if they are enlisted or called to to help and this usually didn't include women however if you look in the sources a lot of women show up either to uh, because the husband was sick because the husband was dead <laughs> because right. uh, many many reasons that means that in case of emergency they would just do the job I, I, my favorite story about that lady agnes hotop um in the uk well, it wasn't the UK back then, um, 1380s, if I remember rightly. She, uh, her father was disputing with a neighbour over a patch of land. They agreed that they would joust on the land and whoever won the joust would win the, win the land. His father came down with gout on the day of the joust. So she put on the armour and, well, she put on armour and she got on the horse and off she went and she knocked the neighbour off his horse and then took off her helmet to reveal that he had been knocked off his horse by a girl, but she was like 18 at the time, 
right? Now, there is absolutely no way on God's good earth you could possibly do that if you hadn't trained. Yep. The armor had to fit her. Yep. She had to know how to ride and to joust and whatever. I mean, or to adjust the, the armor. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've done enough riding with weapons in my hand to know just how much training she must have done. So there's no way in hell I could do that. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, she's, she's like a super famous in, in my head, at least example of, yeah, well, women and girls were often or sometimes trained in this and did particularly well. And okay. The reason she's particularly remembered, I mean, if it had been, if she'd been her father's son, then no one would remember yep. because it wouldn't be a thing, right? But because, so the fact that it was a woman doing this is unusual. Yeah. But it goes but against, clearly, uh, I mean, goes against the social norms. Yeah. But it's not, but not to the point where no one would do it. Yeah. Yeah. But it goes against the social norms. Uh, and if you look into the early uh, boxing champions, lady boxing mm -hmm. champion is the same. This was, uh, the practice was there. The fact that they were recorded in any kind of documents made something because it disturbed the natural order of society as men would see it. Um, so, yeah, you have to look at your sources with that perspective, I think. Sure. Yeah. Now, um, so you, you, you have some sort of current research going on this, but I'm also aware of a... A project that you're working on at the moment about tracking down sort of martial experts in the archives of medieval cities. Yes. And you, know, you have other people working with you. And I have a note here to ask you about Shaolin monks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Do tell. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, marvels in archives research. Sometimes you find, sometimes you don't find anything. And yeah. sometimes you find a very weird document that should not be here, but for some reason it's uh, kept, it's conserved. Uh, and uh, for this case, 1460, um, city of Basel, we have a contract, an original contract between the city and a um, member of the minor order, uh, basically a monk. Um, name is Bruder Jos, so uh, brother Jos. Um, yeah. So, so not a, not an actual Shaolin monk. Yeah, well, he's, he's a German monk. He's a German monk, but he was paid for his martial abilities, and his martial right. abilities are very like um, Shaolin monks. Okay. Actually, he was paid because he was a specialist in caltrops. So putting these, oh yeah, putting these yeah. caltrops on the ground uh, to prevent cavalry or infantry to come mm -hmm. on, uh, he could. Destroy cannon in half from a distance. How? Uh, it's not written. He was just paid to do this. And, so uh, he, could, he could break a cannon in half? Yes. Uh, he could also design um, some amulets to be worn by the defenders on the wall, not to be touched by any firearm. So that would be... That's helpful. Yeah. I, you know, I think I think they could use that in the modern army. That'd be really useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was well paid, okay. so maybe you should, should maybe find him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, uh, he has other uh, very intense knowledge of how an army should be deployed, the wall should be defensed, and many other okay. knowledge. So that was just to outline that usually uh, we think of religious men 
is very far away from anything that happens to the battlefield that is wrong, obviously, like women, same. And uh, I use this... Well, like 133 was written by a priest. Yeah. Well, or if he... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it says priest in the text. Correct. But whether but, he was actually an ordained priest, yes, I don't know. Yeah, that's the, but um, of course, and this context uh, of it's still a mystery for a lot of reasons. But uh, I go along the theory that this uh, book was originating from. Uh, it has what we called clerical uh, influence in the way it is written, mm-hmm. constructed, and everything. But clerical doesn't mean a monastery. It means right. as well people teaching at university in urban centers. Right. And we know that uh, sword fighting was happening with uh, people trying to train or to play it within the city walls because they were punished for it. So, <laughs> so we know it was happening. And maybe uh, the author of this book was uh, a teacher at the university. Okay. And possibly a retired soldier. Uh, it is also possible, and we have uh, other stories telling us about this uh, uh, before Fiore, or not uh, not before Fiore, after Fiore, this uh, Dardy guy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a bunch of exchange of letters uh, because the city complained that he was um, uh, earning more money by teaching uh, martial arts than his actual salary as university teacher. Which is just outrageous. <laughs> Shame on him. Shame on him. Shame on him. Martial arts teachers shouldn't make money. Um, yeah. uh, I'm not sure my wife would agree with that statement. But that, 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 that is interesting because in these documents yeah. you have the amount of uh, the number of hours he was trained, the number of people he was training, uh, mm-hmm. and the salary he was claiming for this. Right. Um, so so this, this monk in... Basil. Yep. Um, what's what's your feeling about what was really going on there? <laughs> I mean, was he was he some like? I mean, he must have, he must have had a reputation to get paid that kind of money. He must have had a reputation. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, maybe he was recommended. Maybe at that point, the city of Basel was under high pressure for many reasons. Um, they were investing a lot to uh, to update or upgrade their defenses. So it's a question of, uh, I think, this is not the scholar or the researcher talking, it's just personal yeah. feeling, right? So you yeah, ask yeah, the so. question. Um, I think he was very well aware of how uh, he could get paid. So it was about playing the flute, I think. <laughs> just saying... Yeah. Uh, I can do exactly what you need, and I have some extra stuff I could do. And, and okay, see that cannon, which my assistant prepared earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this! hey Boom! And the cannon breaks in half, and they all go, oh my god. Yeah, we have to hire him. Crazy. Hire him. We have to hire him. He can break cannons in half with yes. his head. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I do wonder about the cannon breaking because the cannon in 1460 was a pretty chunky piece of metal. Yeah, but we have a one chronicle uh, illustration, an illustrated chronicle, which uh, we have plenty in Switzerland, uh, showing exactly monks doing this. So they were going at night in the en- at the enemy camp, loading powder into the, the cannon itself and lighting it. 
Right. So, so they were so Navy this, SEALs, this Navy SEALs okay, of the yeah. time. <laughs> right. So, 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 so actually what he was quite possibly doing, which is actually a useful thing, is he had a technique for breaking cannon. Yes. By overcharging them or, you know, doing, doing something to the touch hole or something that, or maybe, maybe, the only expression is to spike your guns. <laughs> Um, yeah. Or where, break your where, pipe, where, same. Right, yeah, where, where sol- soldiers, uh, like in the Crimean, well, we often have these like copper nails and a hammer. Mm-hmm. And when they get behind enemy lines, they would stick the copper nail in the touch wall, hammer it in. Mm. So it could be drilled out so the gun wasn't useless, but it was you know, useless for a while. Mm. And that should give you long enough to overrun the position and what have you. So, so maybe it was actually some sort of more... Less a sort of mystical cannon breaking magic trick and more a, a practical, I have a technique for doing this and I can teach it to your soldiers or I can sneak in behind enemy lines and get it done for you. Yeah. Well, it's about the same oh. with the uh, with the boosticle stuff. We don't know uh, exactly right. how. Uh, what we know is that he, he was paid, but just for one year. So maybe <laughs> that was maybe enough. It was, <laughs> was enough to uh, hold the illusion for one year and then he had to go. Okay. Now, um, I know you've done a lot of work to make like historical martial arts a recognized field of research um, according to academic standards, more accessible to general audience, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that, of course, includes actor periodical director. Mm. So um, how, how are you going about this? I mean, I have notes here to ask you about the UNESCO Initiative, Martial Arts Museum, Research Grants, etc. So Tell us, tell us about your aims. <laughs> okay. Um, I was looking how I could actually develop or f- um, sustain the development of uh, research into this because we have, I don't know, uh, 30 careers just to do uh, tech- um, critical editions of books. Sure. Um, and I said, this requires funding. This requires recognition by academia. This is a proper field, blah, blah, blah. How you do this? Well, uh, I spent hours and hours and late nights <laughs> to understand how it works. And I looked at how uh, dance research developed, because I think there is a lot of analogies between uh, what we do and the dance research. And dance research didn't exist until the 90s, not really right. as a proper recognized academic field. Sure. How it developed... I have, a, I have a friend in Finland who has a PhD in researching ballet. Yeah. I actually got that maybe 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But that was unusual. I was like, a PhD in ballet, really? It, ex- yeah. it exists, but uh, only only as from the 90s, because it's the period where official departments uh, were funded to do research on this topic. Right. How they got there? Uh, well, there are a few weird guys. Usually it's an authoritative um, expert who published the first seminal work. Uh, yeah. If we were to compare this with our uh, field, I would say it's Anglo uh, book in the 2000s. Yeah. That 2003, kind of. The Martial Arts of Renaissance yes. Europe. Yeah, great book. This at some point opened um, the field to other fields and make this kind of recognition. That's the starting point. And yeah. then that was in the 60s for dance research. So it took them 30 years to get from this seminal right. work into a funded department who does research explicitly in this field. And uh, the steps were, A, you have to do a specific way of publishing your uh, Mm -hmm. research. That is a journal. Uh, 
and that is an international conferences happening regularly and an association of researchers. Okay. And but we have to reach a critical mass of paid researchers doing this. And uh, I have a lot of colleagues, friends, um, a lot of people who contact me as well. How do you do this? Why? How? What's the way? I want to do my PhD. Can you supervise me? I said no. I am not. I'm not a professor yet. I cannot do this. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, and one of the key points is the journal. And uh, in, we started in 2013. It was an Hungarian initiative, not mine. And uh, okay. I said I have to jump on this because exactly what we do, what which we, what we should do. But they are not uh, into a format that is properly academic. So we have to yeah. turn this into something that is not aimed at the community of practitioners. You already have different platforms to yeah. do this. You have, this is something that should be uh, aimed at recognition for professional academics. It's aimed at the university. Yes. Yeah. So that's the journal. And uh, I am doing this unpaid <laughs> with a lot of great people uh, doing late nights. By the way, I'm two months late on the schedule, actually, for the next issue. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's fine, but uh, it has been difficult. Um, it is still difficult because we are not funded. Um, yeah. and, but that is a necessary, necessary step just to develop the field and to get recognition, not from... Mm. Uh, I don't know, funders or people from the community, it's specifically for people yeah. in the university. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why um, I wanted to go and get a PhD for the work I've done on, on the research side of things, mm. is because every time a university recognizes work like that with something like a PhD, it is another brick in the wall of academic credibility for historical martial arts. Correct. So, yeah, and and honestly, the hardest thing, well, not the hardest thing, the hardest thing was doing the work, but the, the hardest thing from the university's perspective was finding people who are qualified to act as external examiners. Yes. It's like, yes. How, yes. Who, who, do, who do we have that can ask Guy nasty questions? Yes. <laughs> right. my, my supervisor is a specialist of religious texts in the 13th century. So nothing along, and it, when in 2007, when I tried to get this PhD going, um, I looked for someone willing to sign, and the only one I found was this guy, and he said, um, I'll, I'll retire in 10 years, I will do nothing for your career, I'll just put my name there, but you have to find the technical expertise elsewhere. Where can you go? And I say, oh, I have a few names, but uh, yeah, there is no established authority on this field. Right. And this is wow. slowly changing. Uh, I remember I had a, an Excel file of every academic um, work from the license uh, level, now master level, mm -hmm. uh, of the European martial arts, and now there are too many for me to track. So that's a good that's sign. Excellent. That's a good that's sign. That's a really good sign. And uh, I know at least, um, I don't know, I had uh, 12 uh, people with PhDs related on this list. Uh, I, and again, I cannot, it's difficult because you cannot really name your PhD historical European martial arts stuff. I did. Yeah, yeah. It's some, yeah. I, 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 I said, uh, 
Because because I, I got mine in a slightly different way. I didn't write a thesis. I submitted three published books yep. and a lengthy explanation as to why they constituted a PhD. Yeah. And it was examined and stuff in the usual way. And so the thing that is in the university library under sort of, you know, where PhDs are stored, you know, PhD theses are stored. And I have to submit that kind of, it's called a critical review. Yep. In the same format as a PhD thesis. And yeah, the, the, the title of it, um, I've forgotten the details, but it was um, recreating historical martial art or historical combat systems, mm-hmm. something like that. So it's like specific. Yes. Uh, but, but you know what it's like as soon, as soon as you publish something all the details just go out of your head so I literally have, I would yeah have to, just look at the CV <laughs> yeah yeah it's on the... <laughs> um, yeah brilliant okay now I have a, a couple of questions that I um, tend to ask my guests and as a listener of the show you will probably have um, you, know, you know what's coming and well I sent you the questions in advance so alright What's the best idea you never acted on? <laughs> What's the best idea you I never acted on? Yeah. Yeah. The best idea you've had that you haven't acted on. Yeah. Yeah. Being a professor in historical European martial arts. But you've acted on it. You're acting on it. Like you're I'm like, acting, but I'm not there yet. Oh yeah, fair. Okay. <laughs> okay. And so yeah, I mean, and we need to get a university to to fund a chair for historical martial arts. Yeah, that would be great. And I think exactly I know where to go, what to do. And um, I have projects in the drawers to run a chair. I have a thought. How much does it cost to endow a chair? (laughs) In Switzerland, too much. (laughs) It depends. But in... In general, what sort of money are we actually talking about? Now, uh, what they called early career funding for what I'm applying for now, three years in a row, it's about a million uh, Swiss francs. And this only covers salaries and a bit of research money. um, A proper chair. Yeah. Okay. Let me me tell you a story from my father's life. My father's a a veterinary surgeon. Mm -hmm. And a friend of his was um, doing sort of veterinary surgery for horses in the States. Mm -hmm. And there was this massive horse ranch thing where they, um, where they were, they breed horses and what have you. Mm -hmm. It's huge. That's not where most of their money came from. Most of their money came from other sort of livestock Mm -hmm. stuff, but they were like massively rich. Okay. And they were having difficulty getting the horses onto the railway trucks to take them to where they needed to go. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, because the horses were kicking and they just didn't have a good way of doing it. And so this vet friend of my dad's um, said, if I can get those horses onto the truck without fuss and show you how to do it, what's that worth? And they said, well, you know, name your price. He said, well, okay, if I could do it, I want you to endow a chair of veterinary medicine at such and such university in think it's Texas Hmm. and so you're on (laughs) so he he goes and gets a sack and he puts it over the horse's head and the horse just 
follows along behind, goes onto the railway trucks, sack comes off, comes out, puts the sack on the next horse he said, job done. And so they duly endowed a chair of veterinary medicine at this university. That's what I mean by how much money does it take to endow a yeah. chair. I have no idea. Right? I have no idea because, because the thing is, now the, if we could just find somebody rich enough yeah. to simply endow a chair, yes. that by itself solves the problem. Yes, that is true. But um, now university systems uh, in Germany, Switzerland, France, they work with project related. So you you have okay. first to fund projects based stuff, and usually it's now it's two years, but uh, you can go up to five years. But, that's no good. Yeah, <laughs> that's no good. But may, maybe we, we, maybe... we want we want a tenured professorship for you, somewhere decent. <laughs> Cambridge is only an hour up the road from me. Yeah. Okay, let's see. I, I, I'll, I'll ask the Cambridge colleges how much it costs to endow a chair, and then, then we have a budget. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. Sorry again about the rather abrupt transition. Um, that's literally the point at which the power was cut. It actually worked quite well so let's not worry about it too much but let's definitely use it as leverage to get Daniel back on the show so I hope you enjoyed the conversation and you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast while you're there you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists also I have a favor to ask Uh, we are well past 100 episodes of this show And I would be very curious to know what have been your favorite episodes and also what have been your favorite ideas from any given episode. I'd be curious to know what parts of which conversations have really struck a chord with you. So if you could drop me an email at guy at guywindsor.com, that would be marvelous. Let me know what's been the best thing. And of course, as always, if you have any suggestions for improvements, I'm all ears. Speaking of favours, I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Riri Nitiharjo, who is a historical martial arts practitioner in Jakarta, Indonesia. I first met Riri when she came to one of my seminars in Singapore some years ago, and she has some interesting insights into historical martial arts in that part of the world. Um, specifically, We do talk about the Killer Aerolingus Party Tree. Now, if you're curious to know what that is, you're just going to have to tune in next week. So, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. While you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.